All right, let's get started this morning. I want us to review and evaluate ourselves on these nine marks. We're going to cover four of them today, and you need to be prepared to vote, all right? Now, here's how we're going to vote. Uh, you only have three options, uh, one, two, or three. Option number one, weak, all right? We don't like that word, but it's not terribly unkind. We could have said, like, bad or, you know, below, way below average. No, we're just, we're just saying there's a weakness there. Let's, let's shore that up a little bit. So that's vote number one would be weak. Uh, option number two is number two, uh, which is stable or okay, average. Um, obviously, work could be done to improve, but it's not an obvious weakness. So right in the middle there, the stable, average, okay. And the number three would be strong. Not without any flaw, but generally that one's pretty solid. Let's keep, keep it there and maybe grow, but it's generally strong. So we have weak, stable, and strong. One, two, and three. Those will be uh, our numbers for voting in just a moment. Uh, but let's summarize expositional preaching, and then we'll vote just in the sense of forcing ourselves to think through what do I think about that particular mark of a healthy church, and then we'll finish by addressing maybe how we can press forward a little bit more. Uh, so expositional preaching. Uh, let's review what it is, first of all. Exposition. Exposition. What's the root word there that we're thinking on? Expose. To expose what the Bible says. Expositional preaching generally means that the point of the text, whatever God was saying, should be the point of the sermon. It's what we should be saying. Um, that's the limit of exposition. You're simply exposing what God has said. Uh, now think about it. What is the opposite of that English word exposition? Imposition. We usually don't use exposition much except in this context of preaching, but we do understand the idea of imposition, to impose something. So imposition would be a very bad thing when it comes to presenting the Bible. Because now we're taking our ideas, what we think should be, and imposing it on the text. And we're trying to basically grandfather my idea into claiming it's God's idea. We impose ideas onto the text. I want it to say something that fits my argument. Uh, so imposition, uh, while we don't think of that as a preaching word, does help us understand perhaps what exposition is. Uh, we can't impose our ideas on the text. Rather, we have to let whatever the message of the text is be the message of the sermon. Now, we often hear another word that goes with exposition. Can you think of another E word? Even more vague and mysterious. Exegetical or exegesis would be the noun. This means ex out of... And the Jesus part generally means to lead. 
So to lead out of, when you hear exegesis or exegetical preaching, it's not unlike exposition. There is a nuance of difference. Essentially, both words mean to explain the text uh, rather than to just share your own ideas. Exegesis to lead out of, to draw the meaning out of the text. Isogesis, eisegesis would mean to put your meaning into the text. I have an idea, I want it to work, and so I'm going to find a scripture and kind of read my idea into it and say, here, here's a verse that proves it. So exposition and exegesis are related, um, yet this exegesis has a little bit more of the technical work of interpreting what the Bible says. So exposition would be like the general banner. Go to the Bible and let it speak. Exegesis now is to draw out the meaning of the text, which means you're going to start looking up words and stuff. You're going to understand the grammar and how things relate to phrases. You're going to start doing the work of drawing out what does this mean in its original setting. <clears throat> now, to avoid reading into the text what we think, there are rules for interpretation. Uh, there, are, there are guidelines. There is a science, a way to rightly study literature. When we apply it to the Bible, those rules for studying the Bible rightly and interpreting the Bible rightly, uh, they're assigned another big word, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics simply means the science or the principles by which we interpret. So there's big ideas here too, things like the whole counsel of God. So we interpret scripture by scripture. The greatest tool for interpreting some passage you're confused by is to read the rest of the Bible and let the Bible now inform that passage that seems confusing to us. Uh, so that's a big principle of interpretation. There's a lot of other ideas. We might look at the context. Uh, you'll hear phrases like, context is king. Um, what is the Bible saying in its context? Because we have our favorite phrases, right? They show up on couch pillows. We cross-stitch them and hang it on the wall. You know, we do calligraphy. We have all those catchphrases of the Bible, and sometimes they really do have the ability to stand alone. You know, rejoice in the Lord. Well, that, that can pretty much work anywhere, since we're told to do that all the time. Uh, but some passages, you know, when we start thinking of, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, you know, you watch the Christian movie, and that means the little scrawny kid can kick a really long field goal and win the game. Because after all, I can do anything through Christ. Well, no, I, I can't play in the NBA. Uh, that's not how Christ is strengthening me. Um, that's not what the verse is saying, that you can do anything. Uh, what is the context there? What, what, is, what is that promise linked to in the discussion of Philippians 4? And so context is important. It, that governs how we interpret Scripture. The literary genre is important. The books of the law will read differently than the books of poetry. So reading, you know, Deuteronomy is, is going to have a different 
literary feel. It's a different style than Ecclesiastes or the Proverbs. Uh, So we have to consider what genre of literature is being written. Of course, this comes into play, especially when we get into the, the theme of prophecy. People read Revelation, or they read some extravagant language in the prophets, and they think, oh, this must be the end of the world, because the skies were darkened. And then you realize, no, wait a minute. If you understand the literary genre, the prophets often used language of the the heavens being darkened or the stars falling or something. And it was just to signal that this is a really big deal, uh, that God was going to intervene, perhaps way back in the times of Egypt and Israel and Edom or something. Um, So literary genre helps us determine how we interpret the Bible. Grammar is important. Word studies, uh, none of these stand alone. Uh, Preachers are often guilty. You look up in the Greek uh, lexicon what this word means, and we rattle off the meaning, and we think we're done. But really, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble just by looking up the word meanings because Oftentimes, that word meaning meant a lot of different things in the different stages of its development. Sometimes biblical language is different than the extra-biblical Greek language, and you just have to kind of take it all in and make sure you're not making a mistake when it comes to word study. Uh, Grammar, uh, typology and symbolism. We can get really excited about some things, and then we just have to step back and think, wait a minute. Uh, Let's not get too carried away with symbolism. Uh, Maybe you hear a lot about numbers. Often, if you're listening to the radio preachers, you'll often hear them highlight the numbers. Oh, this number means this. And yes, it often does. But just take that with just a very limited bit of weight because numbers don't mean everything in the Bible. Uh, Let them have their place. Uh, But... Interpret types and symbols rightly. What's the historical setting? What was going on when Jeremiah was talking? Because it's good to know because most of what he was saying was to a people at a certain time when something really bad was about to happen. So we have to hear the message in its original setting if we will have any hope of applying it to our setting. Okay, we can't just grab up verses and say, well, this is what it means to me. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything to you. It means what it means in its original setting. Now, how it applies to you, uh, yes, let's think that through. But it has one meaning. It doesn't mean one thing to you, something else to the reformers in the 1500s, something else in the dark ages of the 5th century, something else to the apostles, something else to Elijah or Daniel. No, it means one thing. It's always meant the same thing. Our challenge is, okay, I see what God was saying to his people in this setting. Now, can that truth be applied to me somehow? Uh, That's the challenge. But the historical setting is essential to understanding original meaning. Cultural influences play a part of that. Um, All these ideas govern how we interpret a passage so that we can't just sit around in a circle and say, what does it mean to you? Oh, okay, good. What does it mean to you? No, that, that, that's not helpful. Um, the Bible is authoritative. It's not just suggestive, and so I'll hear it this way, and you might hear it that way, and we can all go just kind of having heard something. No, 
The Bible is authoritative and it says this is true. Uh, our goal now is to rightly divide the word, Paul tells Timothy, uh, in order to know what it means. All that to say, uh, expositional preaching then really does become almost an umbrella of church life. Because if we're not exposing what the Bible says in, in all different forms, whether that's the morning message, whether that's a small group devotional, whether that's Sunday school classes, uh, whatever it would be, if we're not saying what does the Bible say, we don't have hope of being anchored to something that will last. So expositional preaching is, is essential to the life of the church. Now, one other side note here. Question. Is preaching the same as teaching? What do you think? We have some no's. John's going to differ. <laughs> All right, so teaching can lead to worship still. Any explanation on the no, just off the top of your head? So teaching maybe being a little bit more detailed, academic, pull all that together. All right. What else? Yeah, Paul. Okay. So maybe no real biblical biblically defined difference, uh, but culturally, the way we perceive them, is that, or? Right, okay, right. Right. Right, okay. Good. Okay. Dennis and then. Okay. Okay. Good. Uh, Daniel, did you have something? Okay. 
No time. Kirk. <laughs> okay. The head-heart contrast that we've thought through before. Uh, Joshua. Okay. Roy? Roy did have to just bring us right back to the Bible, right? Right. Yeah, I think what we're realizing is we, in, in the connotation of the words, or as Paul introduced, like even, even our, our cultural kind of way of thinking about it anymore, we tend to think teaching is more academic, um, where, and we'll call that appealing to the head information, and preaching is more of this moral ought being communicated, um, more to the heart, we would say. And that's not wrong. Um, there is a sense that generally when you go to a seminar or even a Christian conference, you might hear a different presentation than what you would think of as a sermon. Uh, so Paul mentioned even the word homily or homiletics, where homiletics is simply the art or the we could even say perhaps style by which we communicate exposition and exegesis. So the actual form of preaching, which typically in our culture has taken on a, a structure, um, an expectation of some kind of rah, rah, and really get them fired up because it's supposed to have some kind of divine unction behind it, right? And so you start down that path, though, and it becomes teaching is just monotone lectures of a seminary professor, and preaching is Billy Sunday jumping literally and standing on the pulpit, all right? Uh, and now, now that's preaching, except that Christ never stood on the pulpit, right? Um, and you would have to do your study to answer this question. Do you think the Bible says Christ preached or he taught more often? Um, so... There are some, back to Roy's point, there are some ways to get in the scripture that you would be forced to reckon with the reality of, oh, I really thought I had a bigger difference in my mind, but Christ taught more than he prot, right? And, oh, English language. Uh, and there is no gift of preaching, it's the gift of teaching. Um, and so we think, well, wait a minute, does that mean you're not supposed to do the other? No, those words can still kind of have their meanings, and we recognize that the sermon probably will have exhortation. Um, at its essence, um, Jared mentioned even the idea of evangelism. Uh, well, preaching, by definition, simply is that heralding of a good news. So it's not a structured outline per se. It's not anything in the church setting. It's literally just a herald 
announcing good news. Now, we understand that means the preacher should be announcing something of Christ and the gospel in the form of exposing what the Bible says, but now that word has kind of been taken and put into our context, preaching on Sunday morning, proclaiming the good news. But, but just know it's, it's a lot less structured in its original. It's the guy being sent out to announce to every town, hey, here's the good news. The king has declared, you know, festivities for the next month. And all he's doing is announcing the news. That's the act of heralding, preaching. Um, so... As we think through those words, in a lot of ways, biblically, they're going to be interchangeable. In the practical display, it may take on something in our minds that looks very much like teaching versus preaching. So work out those ideas, those differences, and understand the Bible kind of allows them both to just kind of exist together and never asks us much to distinguish the two. even if they are distinguishable. So expositional preaching, we could at times call it expositional teaching. And of course, my understanding of it may reflect even, you know, my gift. I, I, you know, I don't fall on the revivalist scale of rah-rah and fired-up preaching that you would hear from other really good preachers, even in this city. and so some would say, oh, that's, he's more of a teacher. And then someone would listen to another guy get up and think, oh, now that, that's a preacher. I'm fine with that. Uh, we can all try to improve our gifting and our stewardship. But uh, when you come to the scriptures, I think you'd find preaching and teaching are both highly esteemed. Both of them are revealing what God has said. All right, so let's, let's take an unofficial vote here. One is weak, two, stable, three, is strong. Based on a lot of factors here, so this is a very unofficial kind of vote. Um, How do you think Jared did in presenting expositional preaching, right? (laughs) I assure you, if you hold up a one, that's what I'm going to be thinking, all right? (laughs) Uh, Now, the idea is, remember how you understand it personally, how, how you feel you measure up in this area of a healthy church. And then we're also factoring into this one vote you get to cast, how you think the church as a whole understands expositional preaching. It's really not even as much how much you think I'm a good preacher. Um, that's not what you're voting on, so don't feel bad about voting one, all right? Uh, we're just trying to simply say, okay, Generally, where do we think we are? On this particular mark, how do we score? A one, weak, two, stable, three, strong. And I think in order to tally this uh, rightly, we have to start with just one at a time. So if you think we're in the ones, raise your hand. I almost feel like I should vote one just to comfort you if you were going to and you're like, oh, no one else is doing that. Any? All right. Two. Kind of stable. Jared. Yes, you may, but we round up, all right? (laughs) Three. All right. I think that fits with how I 
marked this one down as well. In both listening as it was taught and then thinking through it in the, in the recent weeks, um, when you think of generally expositional preaching and uh, our approach to it, our understanding of it at Grace Bible Church, uh, I think we would fairly say by popular vote, uh, we're strong in this category. That doesn't mean there's not room for improvement. Again, uh, we're simply trying to get a first a doctor's visit kind of diagnosis. You know, they can't nail everything in that visit, but might be able to tell you a few things. Um, so what are some ideas to consider moving forward? Uh, one of them would be to think, okay, where have we been in the expositional preaching of the church? Uh, as in like what books we've covered, or maybe it's easier to start thinking after 15 years where we haven't been. Um, Anybody name just off the top of your head some of the book studies we have done? James, very first one. Because it was the very first letter written to the church, I thought I would start there. What else? Exodus, that was a long one. Um, what else? Joshua? Galatians? couple others I heard, I just didn't. Acts is a no. <laughs> Not that we won't ever go there. <laughs> First Corinthians. We've been through Mark, parts of John. Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Take your pick. We've been through, that's the only minor prophet, that's the only prophet. So Acts is a desperate need. Um, the prophets uh, have a void when you look through highlighted texts. Uh, thinking through that led me to Jeremiah for a wedding challenge. That's going to be a, I've got some work to do. <laughs> People are going to think, what is this guy doing? Like, we're supposed to be having a wedding here. We've been through Colossians. Yes, the Chronicles. We kind of lumped them together. Ezra, Nehemiah. So a lot of uh, post-exile study. Um, by talking prophets and acts, those are two real targets that when we think of hey, what, do, what else do we need to be thinking on as we're preaching the word? Those are two areas that uh, we want to cover. Uh, there's also ways to exposit the scriptures, and, and I need to do this, I, I feel, in, in the near future, uh, in, in other series than just a book study. Uh, I feel like as a church, we need to think through, what does the Bible say about, um, essentially, maybe the theme is the image of God, uh, stamped on man because it affects issues of our day, um, gender issues, uh, racial conflict, um, the abortion issue. Um, so just being able to think through why, why does a Christian think life begins at, con at conception or do we think that? Um, what's the source of what we call racial conflict? Uh, are there races even? Well, like, what does the Bible say about these things? So 
There are ways to exposit the scripture that might not be, well, which book of the Bible talks about gender, race, and abortion? Well, maybe not any one of them, but the scriptures do address these things. So expositional preaching. Uh, Much work to do, much scripture to learn, and frankly, for most of us, we could start going back through James and 1 Thessalonians and Galatians and Colossians and Ezra and Nehemiah and Joshua and Exodus and do it all again. Um, But for now, we'll keep pressing on into what we think of as new territory for our Grace Bible studies together. All right, Let's, let's try to squeeze in Mark number two, Gospel Doctrine. In summary, the author was trying to communicate a couple of questions. Namely, one, do you understand how the Bible is good news? If you're explaining the Bible to someone, are you ever going to mention anything about this being really good news? Or are you going to immediately dive into the, the trees? Like, we want the forest first. Do we understand the big picture? Or have we lost the big picture because of all of the little pictures. Uh, Can't see the forest because of or for the trees. So do you have an outline in your head? Do you kind of know the flow? Is it a story? Is it a narrative? What, What helps you think through the big picture of the Bible? Um, because the big picture is good news, and maybe it's a phrase that sticks out in your mind. Um, maybe it's a specific gospel sentence or two. But the idea here is step back and understand that the big picture is good news. And wherever you start, and hopefully eventually you'd, you'd at least recognize a good starting place would be uh, also the ending place, the glory of God. And that can be daunting and incredibly fearful because our God is a consuming fire and he is holy and we can't come into his presence as sinners. But that's why even starting at the glory of God, you're going to be able to communicate that the Bible is good news because it reveals how we as sinners can be made right with a holy God. Now there's a simple outline you've probably heard before that helps us think of the story Uh, Creation, chapter 1 of four chapters. Chapter 2 is what? The fall, right? I saw it. Uh, Creation, fall, that's going to carry us a long way, all the way to chapter 3 in the Gospels. And what's chapter 3? Redemption. Redemption, which then facilitates ultimately the promise of restoration. So those four chapters give us just a timeline. It's not the only way to summarize the scripture, but if you were thinking, do I know the story? God, in the beginning, God. So yes, creation, sin ruins it in the fall. That war rages. The promise of the Messiah comes. Redemption is displayed. And now that is unfolding for us until the final restoration, and we studied that even in 1 Peter. That kind of timeline is helpful. Do you recognize that the Bible is a story? How many of you have the storybook Bible? How many of you have read it recently? Hmm? Good. I think some of us even getting beyond the little kids need to read 
the storybook Bible to remind us of the big picture. You can read the Bible to hear exactly what God has said. You can read the storybook Bible to be reminded that it is a beautiful story. In the introduction, he says some people think the Bible is a book of rules. Well, it certainly has rules in it, but that's not its theme. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. Well, there are certainly lives you could imitate, but that's not the the theme of the Bible. So he says, or she, Sally Lloyd-Jones, no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's a story. And just like stories captivate our children, stories of dragons and heroic princes, God's story is the foundation for every dragon and prince story. Bible calls our adversary a dragon, and he calls our hero a prince, a king. And so we're reminded that it's a story. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And so the subtitle is, Every Story Whispers His Name. It's the theme of of the Bible that we should have in our heads. It's, It's a story. It all goes together. And so when we jump into the Psalms for a few weeks in the summer, it's all the same story that Peter was telling. It's the same story not only that Peter told in a letter, but that he lived in the gospel account that Mark gives us. Uh, so do we know the story? Are we, are we keeping the big picture in mind? That yes, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? That, that, that means I've heard the good news and I've believed it. That though sin ruined me, I've been redeemed and I'm awaiting that promise of restoration. So gospel doctrine. How are we at understanding the gospel as good news? So let's, let's vote on this. Uh, your understanding of the gospel is good news. Um, the church's understanding of gospel doctrine. Uh, what do we think here? So one is weak, two stable, three is strong. How many would say your understanding, along with the church's, as you mix that all together, you think uh, a little weak on this? All right. How many say... Let's go with number two, average. We're okay. We're stable. Okay. What about three strong? All right. So we're, we're pushing three, a few more threes than twos, but in the strong to healthy range. Um, again, a good, a good fit for my estimation as well. Uh, moving forward, I think there's some ways that we can reinforce Uh, that timeline of the scriptures. Um, I think there's ways to remind us in certain contexts of sermons of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Keep highlighting the good news in sermons, in teaching, in Sunday school classes. Bring it out in small group discussion. 
It's not just, well, you know, oh yeah, you've got that problem. Okay, what does the Bible say? What, uh, a few weeks ago, we asked that question, whatever the problem is that surfaces, whatever the story on the news, there it is. Now, how does that going to lead me to think about the gospel? How do I get to the gospel from that story, uh, from that news event, from that phone call I just hung up from? How do I get to the gospel from there? Um, I think as we get better at doing that, then I think this uh, mark of gospel doctrine will more and more uh, be strengthened in the church. All right, tip number three, conversion and evangelism. We considered the testimony of your works, your life, Matthew 5. Let your light shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father. That is in some way a testimony, a witness to people. Your work ethic matters. Uh, the, the way you interact with neighbors matters. The way you engage the person at Walmart, in the aisle, or at the cash register, it matters. Because even just your way of living can bring glory to God. But it's clear in 1 Peter 3 that we studied, we have to be ready with our words and with thought because we have to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We have to be able to articulate the good news. So the testimony of your words is important. We talked about planting, watering, harvesting. We probably, we may have touched on this, but success isn't measured simply by the harvest, but our success is measured by obedience to the word. So you look back on this week and to answer the question, was my evangelism successful? You could think, well, did I hear somebody pray the sinner's prayer and put faith in Christ? Well, maybe you didn't. But does the Bible command us to have someone pray a prayer in our hearing? Or No, the Bible commands us to be a witness. So did you take the stand and speak the truth? Did you witness to God's faithfulness, to his holiness that led you to realize, man, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have acted that way? Uh, do you witness to his ability to transform people? Because you may be in a conversation and they're talking about the violence that they're seeing on TV or shooting somewhere or how evil that is, and you had the opportunity to say, I'm just grateful that my God can transform evil people. Uh, did you testify to him? That's what you're called to do. So success is measured by your obedience. Did you witness to who he is, to what he does, to what he's capable of, to his kindness, to his power? Harvest is certainly a measure of success. One of the parables even says he gives you know, this much of a fruit a harvest to this one and, and this much to that one. And so there is some kind of success there, but that's kind of God's success. That's his glory. We're just the witness. We just take the stand and keep on testifying to what we know is good news. 
conversion and evangelism. There's probably more there to conversion, understanding how it happens. There's a lot in this context of evangelism. Some of it could have probably been lumped in, as Dave mentioned in the last study, with outreach and missions. But in the chapters, conversion and evangelism were lumped together. So now the task is ours to think of our own understanding and effort at evangelism and then church-wide understanding and effort at evangelism. And we're left with three choices. One weak, two stable, three strong. So yours and church-wide understanding and effort at evangelism. How many would say one weak? Two, stable. Three, strong. All right. So now we've seen an inversion from preaching and gospel, which we were on the strong end, to the majority, maybe, uh, at least more votes were one than two, recognizing evangelism, conversion, both understanding how conversion happens, because that would motivate our doing of evangelism, and the actual evangelism. Individually, you're the witness, and some kind of corporate organization of that, we're saying we've got work to do. Uh, Again, matching kind of what I would circle of those three, number one, a weakness. Here's, Here's an area of growth. So it's like going to the doctor and he says, hey, your cholesterol looks great. Um, You know, your weight's in the acceptable range. Um, You know, blood work turned out pretty well, but there's this one thing. Your your blood sugar's really getting up there. You're over, I don't even remember the numbers. You know, you're pushing 200 or something. So I think we we need to be a little careful here. In other words, he's highlighting a weakness, a flaw. Yeah, this is good. We're not saying you're going to fall apart on the way home, but it's a weakness. So what do we do with that? Uh, if we're weak in evangelism, let, let's, let's begin prayerfully considering, okay, if God led us through the study of the nine marks and we say, there's the mark, there's the bench, the standard, and, and I'm not reaching it, okay, we need to do better. Lord, show us next steps. We need to maybe tap those who have a passion and gifting for evangelism. Is, is that a gift among us, that, that gift of the evangelist, that, that, that one who just loves to share the good news? Now, we think of the evangelist as what? Well, we think of that as someone who travels around preaching, and they do crusades or campaigns, the old sawdust trail from hundreds of years back, and they'd fill up the big tent, and they'd preach the gospel, the good news. Yes, but that isn't the only way to think of the evangelist in the scriptures. Uh, no more than we would think of the person with a gift of hospitality as having to be up in front of everybody telling what hospitality is. Um, so who are those who, who love to minister uh, in that form of sharing the good news? It's equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. So uh, organizing and, and structuring even events with those who love to do these things, saying, hey, come and join us in this. We're going to be doing this. We're going to be getting the good news out in this way. 
Again, it doesn't mean, oh good, I'll sign up to be evangelistic when there's an event. No, that's just one way to explore, hey, there's a group of people heading out to Santa Caligon days and they're going to do this, hand out water bottles, or they're going to talk to people as they walk by. That's great. Um, Does everybody have to do that? No. Some of you weren't free to do that, but you are free to keep building a bridge to your neighbor. You are free to have them over for a cookout and just show them that you're not weird as a Christian. Uh, You're perfectly free to thank the Lord for your food right in front of them when they don't know what in the world you're doing. Um, The world used to know what it meant to say grace, right? Uh, That came up in our house recently, say grace, and my kids had no idea what that meant. I was like, well, I don't know what it means either because we didn't say the word grace when we said grace. Uh, But pray and thank the Lord for your food and acknowledge him with your neighbor. And you'd just be surprised at how bridges are built. And you might feel very confident about your own personal evangelism and it's not because you were involved in any program. Uh, I think the programs are good because it primes the pump and it shows us, oh, that's not so bad. I can do that. Um, And so be listening, one, to the Holy Spirit regarding evangelism and good news, and two, be listening for opportunities to help out and serve. Uh, Be listening to the call that says, hey, who wants to head this up? Who wants to who wants to pioneer this, you know, venture to lead us into a healthier place? Uh, let's see this weakness as an opportunity for growth and to see God do something for us where uh, we know we're not good. Uh, and, and I certainly think that would be in keeping with His heart for His church. Well, that's a good start. Three of our marks evaluated. Uh, we'll press on and try to even wrap this up next time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which does show us like a mirror uh, our weakness. Uh, Corporately as the church, we want to look into the mirror and see how can we better reflect the church that unfolds in Acts and beyond. Uh, And individually, we want to look at the word and see how how we measure up uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What What a picture Uh, What a standard of perfection we could be easily um, discouraged looking at that picture, and yet that's exactly how it doesn't work. Because as we gaze upon your glory, we're transformed by it, and we're changed from glory to glory. So, So lift our eyes to Christ and let us run the race looking squarely at him, because then we will be strong, we will be changed, we will be healthy Um, Thank you for that great hope that flows from Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.